This is fascinating. What can we do as city folk to contribute to the remineralization of the earth? Yeah, that that's a great question. Um, I almost feel like it's a better question for uh, Baba Oren and Akila, who are doing all this awesome urban food justice work. Um, and, you know, the soil is in cities as well. Um, and so I think, you know, the urban agriculture movement is really, really exciting because what I heard from all of the people that I interviewed for Healing Grounds is that, yes, it's very important to replace carbon in soil today through techniques like growing a soil building cover crop or applying compost or even just growing a rotation of crops that that keep those roots in the ground all year round, that that is ecologically important to start shifting our carbon cycle. But I think what I heard from all of these women as being even more important is that when people are engaging in that, they're rebuilding relationships with land, with soil microbes, with plants. And those relationships that that we build when we do that, especially where we are. So if it becomes a kind of daily practice, something we're reminded of by plants that we see in our daily rhythms, it's those relationships that make a really big difference in the long term. Because then our relationship with the land becomes intertwined with our relationships with people, with our, our human community, our friends, our neighbors. And we Sort of what I ultimately came to by the end of this book and speaking with all these really wise people is that ultimately what needs to shift if we're going to tackle climate change through agriculture is our society's whole relationship with land. And that involves all of us. And it's a, I think it's a kind of reclaiming process of things that are in our histories. And I say this especially, I think, for for indigenous people, people of color, there are these really longstanding traditions of mutually beneficial reciprocal relationships with land. And any kind of engagement in urban agriculture, particularly if it's in community, is rebuilding and reclaiming those relationships, which are really at the heart, I think, of, of you know, successfully building a regenerative agriculture that tackles climate change and all these other issues. So yes, it's the carbon you put in the soil today, but it's also the building of the relationships that create the spaces where that carbon cycle is going to shift, you know, tomorrow and in the next generation and the generation beyond that. And and I found, you know, in working with students on urban agriculture projects that it also starts to lead to students asking other kinds of questions about relationship to land that that now come to their mind because they're they're in relationship with plants. Um, they start to see the other like objects in their life or processes in their life through the lens of you know how will this impact the land, um, and I think all of that is is really key. And also another thing that I see that students have mentioned to me is really important is starting to see the earth as an ally. And this comes up a lot because I'm in the field of environmental studies and sometimes students come in and environmental work feels like one more burden, like one more serious crisis in the world that's on their shoulders on top of all of these other major crises that they really want to deal with. And I hope that they actually leave the class because we do a lot of hands-on stuff saying, oh no, the earth isn't another problem for me to take care of. Actually, earth is an ally with me 
in moving towards liberation. And and my community has understood it that way for a long time. And so it becomes this almost like place of solace and place of, of connecting with a very powerful, positive and supportive energy that then powers all this really great work that those students are doing in the world. So, so many levels, I think, that urban agriculture really contributes to um, a better future in terms of climate and soil carbon, and then all the things we have to build socially to, to realize those kinds of goals. Right, right. No, that's good. I, I, I appreciate you saying that, Liz, about the earth as an ally. And at the same time, if we don't take care of the earth, all those other burdens don't exist anymore. They're moot, right? <laughs> so, I mean, so we, we gotta, we gotta make a decision at some point. Um, and I know Baba Orrin had a question, uh, but one more question from the audience, if you don't mind. So Kali is asking, um, in 1815, it was said there was a nuclear winter due to the misuse of nuclear weapons. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about this, Liz. Uh, you can definitely answer it if you have. If not, we can, um, look it up ourselves and try to have yeah. a discussion next time. Yeah. Sadly, I don't, but I definitely will look it up. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. Yeah. Thanks, Kali. That's a great question. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of feedback, probably because you don't have a mic, but go ahead. Go ahead and talk. Go ahead. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't know that particular reference, but I I think you're right to identify that that nuclear weapons and also nuclear energy um, are a really important source of soil contamination in ways that I think aren't always adequately acknowledged. So in the conversation about um, you know climate solutions and transitioning our energy system, I think there's been a lot of forgetting of these kinds of contamination problems that are associated with nuclear weapons, because nuclear energy, <laughs> which also involves um, you know generating nuclear material, <laughs> just like nuclear weapons, is continually proposed as a clean energy solution to replace fossil fuels. So look in the fine print when you see a proposal for a policy of renewable energy, because that's defined different ways in different places. And in some jurisdictions, some countries, some states, when they talk about a clean energy portfolio, that includes nuclear energy. And so if you are a person who thinks about soil quality, um, that should be of concern or air quality, um, because we, you know, Nuclear energy, for example, like Hanford in Washington is a place that tries to deal with nuclear waste, and their time frame is thousands of years long in terms of any kind of quote-unquote remediation. Um, so nuclear energy being, you know, cited in various communities means that those communities might also ultimately end up with contaminated soil like Hanford, um, and this can be a really serious environmental justice issue. So. I think keeping the eye on the ball of nuclear as an environmental problem is right on because there was a big social movement in this country around anti-nuke in the 70s and 80s. And it's it's really come off of people's radar to the point that a lot of progressives who support renewable energy are saying, well, this is the lesser evil. Let's do this as a bridge out of fossil fuel. And I think particularly low-income communities and communities of color are likely to bear the burden Um of those nuclear plants being cited. So I think we should hold out for solar and wind and energy efficiency. Yes. And you forgot one other water, one other element in, yeah. that, in that cycle. You know, soil is the natural filter of water. So if soil is contaminated, water is contaminated. So 
keep that in mind as well. And we all need water. Every living thing needs water and a lot of it. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Kali and Liz. Um, I know Baba Orr wants to go back to the agroforestry um, topic. Yeah, but also real quick, thanks, Kali, for bringing up a couple of things. And uh, Akil is something we should talk about Um, because we we oftentimes have been working to have people avoid um, using urban soils Mm. because of contamination and quality issues. But I'm wondering what the regenerative restoration process will include in terms of that. I mean, we know about phytoremediation and those kinds of things. What's that extensive program look like? And the colleagues point then, so it's part of regenerating urban soils after years of industrialization, particularly in places like Chicago, mm-hmm. and in pic- particularly where I live, mm-hmm. which is right down the street, like a mile from where U.S. still had a major plant mm-hmm. on Lake Michigan, mm-hmm. right? And if you go down there, uh, the, the, the building is gone, but you see the tracks and you see how extensive the steel mill operation really was. Uh, cause there's tracks that go out to where the ore was and, um, how that whole system worked. But, um, yeah, so I, I think we should look at, um, some situations and maybe some protocols or something, Akila, that deals with that. Um, um, in the hopes that we can look at uh, soil in a bigger context, not just uh, in terms of rural stuff. But also, Kali reminded me, uh, being 73, I remember all the, the above-ground nuclear testing mm-hmm. and the fact that there was uh, strontium-90 in our teeth. I mean, people my age, um, all the fallout stuff, um, stuff that was in the milk, that's how it got to it. I mean, so it was this whole kind of thing that was happening uh, in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. uh, related to um, testing mm-hmm. of nuclear weapons. And that's one reason why they took it underground, not that that made that big of a difference. But uh, so then we still had what they did in, at the atolls um, and the Pacific and all of that. So, uh Thanks for looping that in, Kali. And and thanks, Liz, for remembering also because Navajo or Diné people, uh, Hopi people, particularly in Arizona, are still impacted by the remnants of uranium mining Mm. uh, in terms of contaminating their soil, their water, all of Mm. that. And essentially the government, as they typically do, walked away. And we know the corporations walked Mm. away. And, and are protected by the government, uh, state, local, federal, uh, in terms of not taking responsibility for what they did. So there, that's, that's an important question. Thank you for that.